This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You are the leader in the courtroom, and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your theory, never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, incredible. The defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's tough to grow a firm by trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to. What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting? Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who needs convincing is you. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have Jessica Brilo. Jessica Brilo is an attorney and a trial jury consultant out of Colorado. Jessica, how are you doing today? Good. How are you, Michael? I'm doing great. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. It's always interesting to hear how people got into the, the jury study side of this business. Yeah, so um, I went to law school at Duke, um, and you know they do like a one day thing on jury selection, which to me now is insane that it's a one day um, <laughs> class. But in that, they mentioned uh, that there were people who helped with, you know, formulating cases, helping with jury selection, and that these people were called jury or trial consultants. And I was fortunate enough that the one who was local to me when I was at Duke was David Ball. And so um, I thought that I would get a JD and an MBA and that I would go into marketing and focus groups for products. And when I heard of this career path, I, um, you know, called David up on the phone and said, you know, you don't know who I am, but I think I'm interested in what you do. Can we go to lunch? And um, fortunately, he liked me enough at the lunch that he let me sort of shadow him for three and a half years while I was there. And I switched from the MBA to then to a master's in psychology to sort of fit better with with this career path. So. Um, so that's how I got into it. And that's why, you know, I do only plaintiff's work. I do criminal defense. Um, I'll do either side on like a contract dispute or something, but, um, that, that's sort of how I, I landed in it and ended up studying while I was in law school, you know, everybody's doing moot court or law journal. And I would be sitting at David's house, heading, helping edit opening statements or, um, coming to watch focus groups. And he'd say, you know, write up what you think about this and then let's meet with the client. And, um, that, you know, that's sort of how I spent my law school time. I did my, uh, papers on juror decision-making. I watched jurors deliberate in the Arizona jury project, which is 1996. They allowed video into actual deliberation rooms of actual juries. And so I got to watch a bunch of that, um, which only a handful of people in the nation have access to. And, um, that's how I got started. What a double blessing. First of all, to just start to luck into, well, let me just work with David Ball for a few years and, yeah. you know, watch all these focus group deliberations and watch how they tailor things. But then the Arizona Jury Project, I didn't even know that existed. That's just fascinating. So tell me a little bit more about that. Like what kind of cases? What did you learn? All sorts of cases. You know, a lot of um, typical rear end collision type cases. Um, I, th I think the original intent of it was to find out, you know, we do mock juries and, and things like that, but how accurate are they? And so, you know, to compare what the focus group jurors look like to what the actual jurors look like, um, you know, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference, honestly. It, it was is extremely similar. And so that gives you a good idea for, you know, how, how good the research is. 
And some people are concerned that a camera in there might um, alter the research, but it really, you know, the jurors never really mentioned it within the first five minutes. They might mention the camera or give a hello to it. And then they went about their way and forgot all about it. So, um, and you know, because sometimes they would say not nice things about the attorneys in the case or things that if they were, you know, recognizing yeah. they were really being watched, they probably wouldn't have said. So, yeah. So it, it was really interesting to watch all that and read the transcripts and be a part of it. I bet. What are some of the things you learned uh, that are useful uh, for our cases from, you know, watching all that video and all the other stuff you've done? It's a, bre- it's a broad question, I know. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, sometimes you want to yell at the screen, which happens with, you know, mock juries too, and, and get them back on track. But, you know, juries as a whole uh, do a really good job. You see that people really do want to do their duty. Um, it's rare to have somebody in there who, you know, is really not trying to do their best job. Um, and they often arrive at a logical conclusion, but the way they get there is sometimes a little serpentine. Um, and so, you know, you learn that their their decision making doesn't always follow the way that you think, you know, when you're portraying the case and you think you set out, you know, A, B and C, and this is how the jurors are going to follow the path. They don't because they're not attorneys and they're not thinking about it the same way that you are. Um, and you hear a lot of discussion about their own experiences and 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 past things that have happened to them and how that relates to the case. And um, you, you see how all of that unconscious part of that forms their decision-making process. And, you know, it, you see when, you, when you're in court and you think, oh, here's the law and we're going to give the jurors the law. And then if, as long as I explain it, then they're going to follow it. They're going to fit the facts right in there. But you forget that they're not blank slates, which, you know, courts and judges like to think that they are, but they're just not. And so the way that they're processing the facts as you're going through the case is changing the way that they are going to then see the case and then apply it to those laws if they even understand the law to begin with, which is sometimes a you know a big problem too. So um, you get to see a lot of how that process unfolds. Yeah, I've learned I cannot watch live uh, focus group deliberations. I have to let someone else watch. I can watch it once I know what the result is. Yeah. But because of all the meandering and rabbit trails they go down, it just drives me nuts and I can't take it. And so yeah. I, I'll do what I need to do and then I'll leave and then like I'll go watch the next day or I'll wait for the debriefing and see if I even need to watch. Um, yeah, I just don't have I'd be a better person. It's just like talking to jurors after a verdict. Uh, you know, if I don't do that well, I have trouble talking to them. I just don't want right. to. Right. I just don't want to. <laughs> I know it's wrong, but I just don't have it in me. I need I need someone else to do that for me because it's not. Uh, I'm just not that self-actualized of a person that I can separate the hurt <laughs> I just felt from, you know, going and trying yeah. to make the learning experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard when it's when you're in it. So one thing you said, you've looked at a lot of like just the like regular rear end collisions, like not no big corporation, no big bad guy, no catastrophic injury. Are there things that plaintiffs can do to get a decent result in those cases from what you've seen in all the serious decision making? Yeah, I mean, you know, it always depends on on the facts and, and every case is different, even though you might think that, you know, they're very similar. Every every plaintiff is different and that matters too. you know, how likable your client is and um, the specific facts of the case. But, you know, some of the things that that help are even just the words that you use. Um, I hear all the time attorneys use the word accident. Um, you know, an accident to people is something that happens without anybody at fault. Accidents happen every day. You spill your milk on the counter. That's an accident. Um, if you have kids, they're always saying it was an accident, mom. I didn't mean to. It was an accident. 
And so, you know, moving from that to a wreck or a collision, you know, you, you don't want to say wreck if it's really uh, smaller speeds, um, but even collision, something like that, that doesn't, that portrays that somebody was, had a part in it. Yeah. Um, you never want to say a low speed collision or a low speed accident. You know, you want to portray it as not a lot of visible property damage um, because we all know you can't judge a book by its cover. And so you can talk to jurors about that in voir dire. And, um, you know, sometimes when there's not a lot of damage to the vehicle, that means that all that force went straight over to your plaintiff. Right. Yeah. So um, I think even just being careful with the words that we use can make a big difference in those types of cases. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we 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 have like a swear jar type thing. We're not allowed to say accident. We're not allowed to say, you know, call the defendant by their name. <laughs> if we best we have to definitely not by their first name. Just different ways we word things. We try to do that, too. Now, one thing I've noticed, you, you sent me some notes and so uh, to get ready. And so I want to just kind of ask you some questions about it. You said you've learned that jury decision making is mostly unconscious. Correct. So when people hear a fact, they don't just hear the fact in isolation, you know, in everyday life, even not, not even in court cases, when you're just living your everyday life, you hear a fact and it gets brought into your brain and, and filtered through all of your life experiences as to how you feel about that fact or what you even remember about it or how you remember it. And so often you'll see jurors deliberating and, you know, they all heard the same facts and they have completely different memories of what the facts are or how they, you know, put all the pieces together. And that's because of their their life experiences. So, you know, unconsciously, the jurors are filtering all that information as it comes in. And if it fits with if the story that you're trying to tell fits with something that they can get on board with based on their beliefs and it's consistent with that, then they will accept in that fact and fit it into that framework. But if it's something that goes against their current beliefs, they will either change the fact in their minds and remember it a different way that makes it consistent. Or they will throw it out and forget about it altogether and focus on the things that do fit into that framework. So you have to come up with a story that resonates with jurors based on what their attitudes and beliefs are. And what you have to realize about that, too, is each fact that comes in, the, the earlier facts are important because it sets up what that framework is for them. And so if you aren't winning out of the gate, if you, you know, sort of mess up on your voir dire and your opening and think, oh, well, I'll catch up later. It doesn't work that way because the facts that come in are already filtered by the previous facts. So if, if they're starting to be on your side in voir dire and opening, then facts that come in that are against you, they'll start to throw them out and, and or alter them. But if they're already leaning against you, then the facts that are good for you, they're going to do that, too. And so you have to be really careful to set yourself up right from the beginning, because it's really hard to turn it around when you get further into the case. Yeah, that's something I've struggled with. Uh, let's say jury selection. Uh, you know, I know how to get a bunch of people off for cause. Uh, you know, you ask the right questions. People say they don't want to give money for pain and suffering, that they don't like the burden to prove. Uh, maybe if there's punitive damage allegation, they don't like punitives. But sometimes when you when you do that, the discussion gets to the point where, you know, it becomes like, well, yeah, your case is a real piece of crap. No wonder you need, you know, it. Uh, you don't have enough positive in there. And and then they start doing everything else as a negative. So even though you got people off for cause, the people that are left are already feeling yucky about your case. Is there, are there things we can do that can both get people off for cause and keep it more positive? Yeah. And so Vardier and mini openings are really tricky in that way, right? Because you don't, you don't want to set yourself up where jurors think that the case is horrible. But you also don't want to make your case too strong because then you end up giving jurors food to, to feed back to you to get off for cause that are your good jurors, you know? So 
you you want to find those bad ones. You don't want to pump up your case too much. I think, you know, there's a balance between asking useful questions. You know, I, I, I hate when attorneys, they go in there and they just want to ask leading questions that the jurors can see through it, right? They know that you are trying to push your propaganda onto them as a trial attorney. And so you can't do that because you lose your credibility with them very early on. And it's not doing you any good because you're trying to push your case in a way that they're going to, you know, disbelieve it anyway, because they don't like the way you're doing it. So, you know, you you have to set up for the bad facts, but asking in a way that, you know, says are, that, that there's more coming, you know, so if you heard this really bad fact about my client, how many of you feel like regardless of what the rest of the evidence facts or the law say that, you know, case is closed, we should just go home. And so you're you're setting them up to think, okay, well, I guess he's he's hinting at the fact that there's more information that applies to this than what they're asking me about right now. Um, you know, and you can set up themes. So, you know, you can ask people, you know, if it's a rules type of case, then you can ask them in, in voir dire about, you know, what rules do you follow in your home or in your work and why do you have those? And so, you know, hinting at it in useful ways, I think is okay. Um, and And otherwise, I think you do have to sort of expect that jurors are going to wait. They will wait for your opening for most of your facts. You just have to set them up for the fact that everything you're talking about in, in voir dire is out of context, that there's things that are going to be put in context once they get the facts, but we're not at that point in trial where I can give you those facts yet. And, you know, you said that facts in the story have to resonate with the jurors' pre-existing attitudes and beliefs because everything gets filtered through that. How do we figure out what the key attitudes and beliefs that they have in the limited amount of time for Gordire, and how do we figure out how to use that? It depends sort of on, on the value of the case. You know, that's where focus groups and mock trials come in really handy, of course, because you can find out what beliefs jurors are generally filtering the facts through. Some things, you know, are decently obvious in, in specific cases in terms of, you know, jurors hate insurance companies in general, um, jurors like doctors and trust them. You know, there's, there's beliefs that are um, not across the board. There are some jurors who don't like doctors. And so you can ask about those, you know, and, and you know that those are going to come up. Um, and so, and sometimes it takes a, you know, a trained eye to see what these, those issues are going to be in the case. But oftentimes you can sort of look at it and even talk to people. If you can't do a normal focus group, you know, go talk to some neighbors and find out, you know, where they seem to get hung up on it. And then you have to craft questions for voir dire that, that deal with that, that so you can find out where they stand. Yeah, I think one that really hurt me in my last trial, and I don't think it was, I don't know what I could have done about it. Like about 80% of the jurors had been in a crash. All of them had been in a crash, who had been in a crash, had been in a worse crash than the one we were there, and not one of them had been injured. And they all said they could keep an open mind, but, yeah. little, you know, I, I, I think that may have yeah. had some uh, bearing into how bad they thought the injuries were. I don't know, but I don't know, but I don't know how much that, I mean, how much can you say, like, well, someone's had a back injury before, they're going to be better or worse? I mean, some people say, well, they're better because they understand it. Some people say they're worse because they didn't get any money for it. Is there any way to predict that stuff? Well, there's no real way to predict it other than you can sort of ask them how they feel about it. But, you know, sometimes jurors don't really know how they feel. And so they'll give you an right. answer and it's not always uh, trustworthy, um, not because they're trying to lie to you. It's just they don't know how they're going to feel. And people don't know their own biases. So, you know, I think on on the whole, I tend to strike jurors who have similar experiences in part be, because I guess, you know, they, they feel like I didn't get any money for it, but also because they live with it every day. And so that becomes normal to them. You know, I, if I've got back pain every day. I get on with my life. It's normal to me. Whereas somebody who has never experienced really any pain might think, oh, that's horrible. You know, I would I don't know what I would do with that. And so 
it's, you know, you could get somebody who has the same thing who could be a great juror for you, but it's a risk. And so if that's a more of a leadership type of person, persuasive, um, nice, outgoing, usually you don't want to risk it on that type of person. Uh-huh. And what do you do to try to, to see who's going to be like the potential leaders and who, you know, who are more valuable if they're on your side, but more dangerous if they're not versus who are the kind of the, the go along follower type people? Yeah, I think some of it you can tell by how they act in jury selection. Um, You know, you can watch them as they're walking in. Does somebody hold open the door for other people? Do they wait till others are seated before they sit down? Are they sort of watching and monitoring the room, even though they're not in charge of it? Um, You can tell by their confidence and when they speak, you know, but there's a difference between somebody who speaks a lot and somebody who's a leader. So we see all the time in mock trials that there are people who are speaking a lot, but are more obnoxious and are, you know, have opinions that most people don't follow. And jurors usually just toss them to the side. And so you don't want to think that anybody who talks a lot is necessarily a leader. But if they seem like they are, you know, friendly and likable and outgoing and, and you know, smart or have a specific um, link to your case, if they have background that makes them an expertise in your case, they can become the leader just even if they're not more outgoing, you know, jurors will turn to them to ask their opinions on the facts of the case. So those are the things that you usually want to want to look for. And and just don't get swayed by somebody who's necessarily a big talker. You also, uh, we've talked before this podcast some, and one thing you brought up was case framing. What is case framing? Yeah, so it's it's the way in which you want to portray the case. Um, you know, there's different ways you can tell a story. And it depends on, you know, who you want to start with and where does the story evolve to? What are you focused on within that story? When does your plaintiff get introduced into the story? What rules do we want to focus on? What facts do we need to bring up? But when do we bring them up? And so, you know, if you tell a story and you start with, um, you know, my client got in the car and she was just, you know, minding her own business and driving to work. And the, the, that same story, even though the, the collision is the same, told from the perspective of, you know, the defendant gets in the car. It's at this time in the morning. The, the roads are wet. Wherever the focus is at first is what jurors can pay attention to. So the facts that you give them is all they have to pay attention to. If your client is up front and you're telling the story of your client, then jurors are focused on your client. And they're already thinking, did she take a path that she didn't know? Was she drinking coffee while she was driving? Was she texting while she was there? All these things that aren't even in the evidence is what they're focused on. So part of it is figuring out you know, how to tell the story. And part of it is figuring out what the story even is. You know, for things like a med mal case, they like to focus on the bad health of your client. And so you obviously have to deal with any pre-existing conditions and things like that. But when do you bring that up? If you do it early, then that's what jurors focus on. And all the other facts get filtered through while well, she was already in bad shape. Yeah. Whereas if you focus on, you know, doctors are here to help people. There's no sign on the door that says, if you are overweight and a smoker, we can't treat you. They're there often for people who are having trouble with something or have a lot of pre-existing conditions and then have compounding issues, you know, causing more issues. That's why we have doctors. If everyone was in perfect health, we don't need them. So, you know, to frame it that way first and then say, okay, so she had all these other things and here's why that doesn't matter. Um, You know, let me put those things into context for you. Um, Same with like a police misconduct case, right? They like to blame the criminal for, you know, the police had to do what they did because there was a criminal here and they're a bad person. Yes, but there are protocols in place because police act within normal society. If they are shooting at somebody through a car, there are pedestrians on the other side of that car. 
doesn't matter that there's a criminal in there. They have certain rules that they follow because there is a criminal in there. And so framing is just figuring out how to tell the most persuasive story, what facts you want to focus on, and what order you need to tell them in. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. You talked to some about when you're framing a story, don't focus on the plaintiff. Are you talking about that the order or are you talking about more than that? Somewhat more than that. So the order definitely matters in terms of when you tell the story. But, you know, it used to be maybe 20 something years ago at this point, before all the tort reform stuff hit, you could go into the courtroom and say, here's my client. She was really injured. She's a really good person. Um, you know, please compensate her for what she's gone through and what's been taken from her. That doesn't work as well anymore. It used to work okay. I'm sure it still would have been better to present it this other way, but it worked okay. Um, but now you walk into a room where jurors, you know, are very skeptical of your claims. You're exaggerating everything you asked for. The client might be lying about their injuries. And so even if you have a likable client, it, it's not helpful to focus the case on your client. And if you have an unlikable client, you definitely don't want the case to be about your client. So the framing needs to be centered around what the defendant did wrong. And if possible, even what the whole industry is doing wrong. You want to get it as big as possible so that, you know, the the danger and the problems that are created from this action is systemic. And, and that way jurors see themselves being targets of it at some point. And so when you focus on that and your client is just one of many possible people who got injured by this, then jurors are a lot more likely to, to buy into it and give you a lot more money because they see that it applies to them. If it just applies to your client, then you need people who are very giving people, but everybody's going to give more when it protects them, whether you know they're liberals or conservatives or giving people or not, you know, you, if, if someone's coming at you with a gun, you're saving yourself before you save everybody else. Right. right. So the, the case is stronger when you can focus on other things rather than just your client. And let's say you're like in an ordinary car wreck case, you know, like, like uh, you know, some of our trucking cases, you know, we're able to get into that. You have companies that are system systematically putting drivers yeah. on the road for too many hours, you know, looking the other way or even telling them how to fudge the electronic logs. You know, you'll see them like go to sleep in one city and suddenly yeah. they wake up supposedly eight hours away uh, <laughs> while the you know, logging device has been disconnected. Uh, but on a regular car wreck, you know, we used to have like the 75-year-old lady that maybe shouldn't be driving anymore, but, you know, she just, you know, hit the back of someone's car at a stop sign because she just didn't notice them or didn't hit the brakes quick enough. Uh, is there a way to make those cases about the jury? Yeah. So then you focus on the extent of what the injuries could have been. So if your client has, you know, disc issues from it, you don't want to vilify the 75 year old woman who's driving. You know, she's she, it's not about her. It's about the fact that every time we get on the road, we are implicitly making a contract with other drivers on the road to be safe and to, you know, take care of each other while we're out there and do what we're supposed to do. And so whether she meant to do it or not, obviously, she didn't mean to do it. But Nevertheless, you know, she's caused this harm. And so the harm could have been, rather than just, you know, the, the injuries to your client, it could have been that she ran over a child. It could be that she, you know, hit a different pedestrian. And so, you know, th this isn't about punishing her. This is about the fact that, you know, this was something dangerous 
and we don't want to, you know, have a, you know, community standards that this is okay. So, you know, it's, it's hard to give up driving if you're older, but what's the alternative? Do we want to allow people to do this and then say, well, I'm sorry, it was a mistake and an accident. Well, what do we do with the people that are hurt? So, you know, you take a softer approach, but you have to show that the danger is more than just, you know, oh, a fender bender, that, that this is really a problem. One other thing that, you know, you when we talked before to prepare for it is something that's one of my pet peeves and that, you know, we'll be in litigation, you know, for two, three years sometimes. And the, the defense has come up with all these ridiculous, offensive to us defenses and theories. And then, you know, the lawyers I, you know, that I've worked with, especially some of our co-counsel, they, they want to make the case about how bad the defendant is for coming up with these things and how their defenses are all wrong. Uh, and I've always thought, no, we need to play in our field, not their field. And I think I noticed you said, uh, you know, we should focus on why our version of the facts are true, not playing the defendant's game. Why is that? And can you tell, tell us a little more about that? So, you know, I think if it's outrageous and the jurors get to know a lot of the background information about how the defense has been stringing you along or lying about things, then I do think you can focus on it because then you're focusing on their lies, which means that anything they present is not trustworthy. So I think that's a different category. But in general, you know, when they, they want to throw everything up against the wall to see what sticks. And so you can't spend your whole time batting down every single one of those things that comes at you, then your whole case becomes defensive. And so I think you have to focus on, you know, the actual facts of your case. So if you have, you know, a, a um, insurance bad faith case, for example, you know, you, often they want to focus on what happened in the accident and, and who got hurt and why they got hurt and why the insurance got involved. But none of that is relevant. You know, the, at the point that the insurance got involved, let's focus on whether they followed their policies and their procedures and whether they put the interests of their client above their own. Like that's where we need to focus. And so we can talk about what happened in, in the rack and we need to talk about that, but let's not focus on that. And, and every time they bring it up, it's just a red herring. They're, they're, you know, they're putting things out of context. And so let's always bring things back into context. And this is what we're focused on. So you can't play a defensive game all the time. You need to focus on your best facts Focus on where you need the jurors to, to be. Don't ignore what they're saying, but keep reminding the jurors that that, okay, let's address that point. And let's also remind you that it's irrelevant. They're playing games with you. I think a lot has to do with the order of it. I mean, I think, you know, we need to tell our story first and then get into, you know, by the way, they're coming up with these things and this is why they're ridiculous or what, you know, whatever is going to be. This is why we looked at this and this is why you don't have to, why it doesn't get in the way. Yeah. And Keith Mitnick, he's got to think about in context versus out of context. And so if you look up any of Keith's stuff, it's phenomenal because, you know, he he tells jurors early on, you know, you're going to hear a lot of things from the defense, but I'm going to put them in context for you. And it's the same as, you know, taking a photograph and zooming in on one little thing. And, and when you when you zoom back out and you can see what the actual whole picture is, it's very different. So, you know, this is what they're going to tell you, but I'm going to put all this in context for you. And I think that's really helpful in those cases. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit more about jury selection. I've heard so many, there's different kinds. I've heard exclusionary, tribe building, inclusionary. I've heard all these different things. What do you think the main purpose is of jury selection? Yeah, so every people do, and all these are great trial attorneys who have different theories on it. So I'm not going to say any one of them is wrong. But I think different things work for different people. Um, you know, if you're, if you're Nick Raleigh, I think it works great to form a relationship with the jurors as your primary purpose. Um, my primary purpose in general for people is to, figure out who the jurors are that we want off. Secondary to that is both forming a connection with the jurors and, you know, pushing the themes of your case to the degree that it, it's reasonable and, and helps you to do so. Um, I probably put the themes last in that. I, I think you need to really form a connection with the jurors and you need to find out who you need to get off. 
So how do we find out who we need to get off? Some of it is, you know, asking the right questions. Um, you know, often I go into jury selection with attorneys and the questions that they're going to ask are not helpful. Um, you have to have questions that will elicit honest answers, get people to open up, to really talk. You have to be good at listening. You have to be good at, you know, sort of moderating a group. And, you know, this person thought about that. And, you know, who else agrees with that? And Miss X, do you disagree with that in any way? And sort of get a discussion going. I think without that, you don't learn a whole lot. Um, a lot of follow up. Tell me more about that. Um, explain to me your thinking on that. And, and I think being really honest and upfront with the facts of your case. I think a lot of attorneys are really scared going into Vardir to really put their worst facts out there um, because they think that it will sort of taint the case. But you, when do you want it to come up? You can't have it come up for the first time in trial when you've already selected the jury. This is your time to talk about those things and get those people off and then have jurors left that are okay with those facts. And so you have to just be really honest about it going in in order to get honest and helpful answers you know, from them. And the second purpose is, you said, forming a connection. What, what can we do to help form a connection with jurors? Yeah, listening to them, um, talking less. You know, I see all the time attorneys will walk up there and as the juror's talking, they're taking notes or they're turning around and to walk back toward a podium. Um, you know, if somebody turns their back on you while you're talking, you know that they're not really paying attention to you and valuing what, what you're saying. Um, you know, thanking them for their bad responses, their, their, their responses that you don't like so much that we need to know. Um, respecting that they have those opinions. You know, I really respect that you have that, that opinion. Um, you know, I, I appreciate that you've brought it forth and been so honest with me. Um, you know, not treating them differently if you feel like they're a bad juror for you versus if they're a good juror for you. You know, they're all people, they're all humans. They just might not be right for this particular case and they might need to be serving on a different case somewhere. They might be a great juror for you on a different case. Um, and so I think just, you know, being respectful of them and, and being conscious of how you're interacting and listening to them is, is what you need to do to form a connection. What are some mistakes you see lawyers make when they're doing jury selection? Um, so talking too much talking about themselves. I think often attorneys get up and they, they want to tell a story about themselves and they do it in the context of trying to be helpful. And they're trying to say, you know, I'm going to set you up for, you know, this, this uh, question by giving you my background on it or, or they're trying to ingratiate themselves to somebody. Oh, I was in the army too. And I served this time, but you know, jurors are, they're watching their clocks. They, they miss their kids. They're wondering when they're going to get out. They're worried about their work. And so they don't care about you right now. Um, and, and every moment that you try to make it about you, they're just sort of angry that you're make, making the process take longer. So, you know, stick to, to what is helpful for the case and getting to know them and being conscious of that for them. Um, and then I think, you know, a lot of attorneys will ask questions like, would you have a problem with this? Or do you have a problem with that? And the pro I don't like asking if you have a problem with something because problem it, it, it ends up feeling like you're saying something negative about the juror themselves, um, you know, but that they're being unreasonable that they would have this problem with something. And it's just got this really negative connotation to it. So instead, you know, say things like, how many of you feel this? Or would it, you know, would it be hard for you to do X, Y, or Z, or to follow this law, or to, you know, to, to hear these facts and and be neutral in the decision? And so, I think using words like neutral, um, 
you know, a lot of people ask you and try and lock down cause challenges. Can you be un, be fair and unbiased? Or, you know, do you feel like that's going to be hard? Well, every juror, even if they have biases, feel like they can put them aside and be fair and unbiased. So asking that actually, you know, hurts your cause challenge. You've got to go about a different way of, you know, are we starting out a little bit behind? Would I have to catch up in the race? Um, is this a really strong feeling for you that would be hard for you to set aside? And therefore, you know, you wouldn't want to be in the position of my client if, if we had you as a juror and, and you were in my client's position, yeah. you have to get about it a different way because as soon as you say, well, but can, you know, you can't be fair. Oh no, I can be fair. So I think those are things that, that often attorneys do that, you know, they're trying to do the right thing, but it's just not the right phrasing and, and words to do it. Yeah. I think the problem is if you talk to, you know, I remember before I started law school, I was brought to dinner with the man. I, w I had a very different outlook on life back then. Uh, with one of the founders of a group called Citizens Against Wall Street Abuse, one of the very first tort reform organizations. And he thought he was being very fair. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't feel like he was biased yeah. at all. He, yeah. right. he saw <laughs> right. the world. And, uh, you know, so, but it, yeah. I certainly wouldn't want him on my jury. Very pleasant man to have dinner with, but I would not want him on my jury. <laughs> exactly. I mean, everyone thinks they're fair, right? I mean, we have this political divide in the country. Do you think one side thinks that they're unfair? I mean, of course not. Everyone thinks that they're doing what's right and what's fair. That's just what they believe. No, I think that's so important that, too to go in there with that uh, mindset because I think I see too many people when they hear certain things you could see the lawyer like pushing the juror as an other as a I don't like you and yeah I, I don't think you ever want to be on that side of that divide and have the jurors have to pick sides between you and a fellow juror. How about I mean I have people I've, I've had a lot of debate with the lawyers about this people that want to talk about something you know in in their jury selection trying to identify good or bad jurors talking about something political like Trump our COVID response. What's your thought on that? I stay away from those. I mean, what you want to do is unify this group. Um, you know, you don't want people bickering. If you're the defense, you might want to do it to get people, you know, to, to be against each other. But you need a group of people who is going to respect each other and work together to get to either a unanimous verdict or a verdict that's at least, you know, three quarters or whatever the, the rule is in your in your state. So you don't want people starting out, you know, disliking each other based on things like that. Um, another thing, you've done a lot of focus group work, but you actually wrote something on how to do focus groups yourself. Isn't that right? Correct. I have a, it's a free ebook basically about how to do your own uh, focus groups so that, you know, I had a lot of people coming to me wanting help and they would say, you know, I ran some focus groups and can you help me with this? Because, you know, a lot of people don't have the budget to hire a consultant to do that part of it. And so they're trying to all do it themselves, which is wonderful. I think, you know, the more attorneys do their own focus groups, the better. Um, but you have to do it in the right way. Uh, otherwise, it ends up being misleading for you. And so when I look at how they've been doing it or how the jurors were recruited or how they presented the evidence, then I have to say, you know, I don't we can't really rely on this because it, it could be it, it could be useful, but I don't know. It could be something that it's going to throw us way off track. And so I can't rely on on that research. So I'm trying to get you know people to at least if they're going to do their own their own research to do it in a way that's not going to compromise the validity of the results. So, you know, I, I wrote this, this ebook is a quick, good, quick read, and it's sort of a reference guide for, you know, how to recruit, how to choose the type of focus group you want, um, how to write the scripts, things to watch out for, um, to set yourself up for success. And if somebody wanted to get a copy of that book, uh, would they be able, you know, how would they be able to go about doing that? And, and who's allowed to get a copy of that book, too? Yeah. So, you know, it's in, it's, it's out in the market, so it, it could get to anybody. But, I, you know, I'm handing it out to plaintiff's attorneys. Um, you can send me an email if you want to get a copy of it, uh, and you're free to share it on, you know, trial attorney listservs, 
with other trial attorneys, things like that um, on the plaintiff's side. Uh, as long as you're sharing the whole book, I don't want segments out of it, not for my own benefit, but it, it can be misleading if you don't have the whole book together. So um, you can email me. My email is jessica at trialdynamics.net. And that'll be in the show notes as well, jessica at trialdynamics.net. And, you know, just go hit her up with an email if you want to try to get a copy of it. I, I have it. It's very useful. Uh, you know, we've been doing our own for quite a while. We also bring in on, on bigger cases that can support it. We bring someone else in because, frankly, you all are professionals for a reason and you've done it more than we have. Uh, and it's hard. Right. Uh, it's hard to keep the neutral frame of mind when you're talking to somebody about your own case. Uh, recruiting's hard um, and getting harder now that people don't answer their phones. It's harder to people to respond to stuff. Yeah. Uh, but for those that are trying to you know, do it themselves or, or trying to decide whether I want to do it myself or get a consultant, what are some of the things that, let's start with recruiting that you've seen that, you know, where people get it wrong in the focus group recruiting? Yeah, uh, recruiting is hard. I mean, you know, and professional recruiters charge a decent amount per juror for a reason. Um, I used to do my own recruiting and and doing it right is is not easy. Uh, you, you need to get a good cross-section of the community. It needs to be in the trial venue, or if you have a really small venue and you can't try it there, then uh, you know a comparable venue to that. Um, it, you know, if you if you're calling up Robert Half Legal, that that's not going to be representative of your jury pool. Um, you know, when Craigslist was big, which you know now it's not as as active because of all the Facebook stuff. You know, recruiting off of Craigslist got a lot of stay-at-home moms, college students. You know, that's not your jury pool either. So doing recruiting right requires getting into a lot of different spaces to, to pull people from, you know, posting in church in church areas or coffee shops, posting on Facebook, uh, buy, sell trade groups um, and, and doing it in a way that your post doesn't get deleted, which sometimes it does. So, you know, it, it's tough, but you've got to get people that aren't just in, in one area or another. You, you have to get a good cross section of the community. Yeah. One thing I like about Facebook is you can really target your ads. I uh, mean, if you want to, if you do, if you pay and promote them to people right. you know, in your county with the demographics, the only thing I'm, I think it's not, not as good as it was uh, <laughs> just because there is, there's starting to yeah. be an age, you know, people my age, everyone uses Facebook. No one, my son's age uses Facebook. He's 17. And so I think with some of the younger jurors that, you know, yeah. Facebook, they don't want to be on Facebook because they don't want their mom and dad seeing all their stuff and bothering them. And yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then you have to figure out TikTok and all this other stuff, you know, which yeah. I, I'm definitely not up to speed on on all of those. I'm not either. I'm actually looking for somebody to help get me up to speed on that stuff. We're looking for a social media person at the firm. Just because yeah. I have to admit I'm a I'm an old white guy in my 50s and that's not <laughs> man's got those limitations. Accurate <laughs> thinking is very important. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So yeah. I guess so you need to get, like you said, a good representative sample, you know, demographically, geographically, you know, the same types of attitudes and people you're going to actually get showing up for jury duty. They used to, and, and now they've gotten more into jury privacy. Right. We used to be able to just get the, like the lists of the people that had been called for jury duty uh, in like the three months before and yeah. then market the, and then recruit yeah. whoever from that, that group. It wasn't in a similar trial, but now most of the court clerks won't give up that info anymore. That made it easier. Yeah, those are super helpful if you can get them, but they're hard to get. How about actually doing the focus groups? What are some of the things that people do that, that skew the results? Yeah, um, you know, even through the recruiting and where they show up, um, you have to make sure that they don't know who you are, your name, your firm name, 
because jurors will Google that and then, uh, you know, immediately they know which side is putting on the presentation and then they, you know, they, they alter their views and what they'll tell you based on that. Um, pushing the other side, your side stuff too much. You really want to lose the focus group and find all the bad facts, which is hard to do when you're, you know, like you said, when it's your case and you're invested in it, it's hard to do that. But you really have to push the defense side harder than than normal and, and t- tone yours down a little bit so that you can see what the problems are in the case. Um, and, you know, the way you ask questions and follow up on questions can reveal some of that, too. So it's hard, you know, when we run full day mock trials where it's a deliberation group, jurors send in questions and I have the attorneys, you know, write out the answers for me. I'm the one running the group. So I go in and give the answers. But often I've talked with the attorneys because they'll write down the answer from their point of view, right, from the, from the plaintiff's point of view. But we need to have the answer from the defense point of view, too. You can't just go in and, you know, bat down every juror question with things that are helpful to you. So it, it's little things like that that you don't even think that you're doing that end up becoming a problem. So what do we do uh, with this negative information we get? So we, fo- we do a focus group. We find out the problems in our case. What do we do with them? So there's a couple of different options. One is, you know, you look through the case information yourself, see what the jurors said, and, and then try to reframe it and, and retry it again and see if you get different results. Um, often attorneys want to go in and ask the jurors afterwards, you know, if I presented this fact instead of that, you know, how would that have changed your viewpoint? And so you can ask people that, but because they're humans, they'll give you an answer. I mean, if you ask me a question, I'm going to give you an answer. But I don't know what my actual answer would have been had you presented that fact in sequence when you actually did the presentation, because that's how the framework of the case gets set. So if you you change the order of the facts, you're changing the framing of the case. And so people don't know how they would react if you change that framing. So you you can't really rely on their answers for that. You really do have to retest it. Um, so, you know, sometimes a good middle ground is for you to, to do the running of the focus group, say, listen, you know, I, I did it based on this book, which told me how to do it so that it's at least more reliable. Here's what my video is. You know, can you review the video for me? Go to a consultant and say, can you review the video for me and tell me what you see in this and, you know, what you take out of it? Because sometimes it takes a trained eye to see what are the jurors really saying? Why are they actually getting stuck on things? And then, you know, how do we either reframe this for trial based off of that? Or what do we want to then test next in the next round of focus groups? And so what are, you know, besides focus groups, uh, what are some of the things you do to help make attorneys better or to help us improve? Yeah. um, So I do a lot of uh, drafting of opening statements, um, you know, opening statement development and strategy how to frame the case, what order you want things to come out in, what words you're going to use for it. Um, a lot of uh, drafting of voir dire questions um, and strategizing for that. What do we need to ask about? How do we ask it? What order do we ask it in? Um, and, you know, some of those also all bleed together with general case analysis and, and framing, right? Because all of that, when you're doing case framing, then it's like, okay, well, the way we frame that is through doing this in the opening statement or asking this question in voir dire. So all of those sort of bleed together for me. Um, and then if you if you want me to come and help select the jury, you know, I come to jury selection and help to, to do that as well. Um, and uh, I do some witness prep work if, if that's needed. Um, and, and then, you know, being sort of the sidebar, the background in terms of uh, focus group work, if you need the help on the back end. Yeah. And I do really encourage people. I mean, that you you learn so much more about your case, partially from the wisdom of the consultant, partially from being forced to spend large amounts of time, uninterrupted time working on your case. Yeah. Uh, you know, respectfully, I mean, I said you guys add a lot of value and I, you know, I'm a believer and, you know, always want to learn from other people, 
uh, always wanting to, you know, especially on a big case, getting as much information as I, as I can. But I also think that you force, whenever I work with, a, with you or another consultant, it forces me to block off the time and to yeah. do these things early and to turn off the email and turn off the ringer on the phone so that I can just focus on that one case. And I think that's super important too. Right. Correct. So, uh, you know, I know your, your email, uh, you, we've said before, it's in the show notes. You also have a website. I do. It's trialdynamics.net, T-R-I-A-L-D-Y-N-A-M-I-C-S.net. And I encourage everyone to, you know, go to Jessica's website, check it out. Um, Jessica, I, I look forward to working with you. Uh, we're, we're working on finding the right case. Yeah. And uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, anyone else has a case out there, want to give her a shot or just want to learn how to do your own focus groups, send her, a, send her an email and she'll be happy to send that to you. Thank you so much for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I know I've learned. Hopefully uh, all the listeners have too. I've enjoyed having you on and I hope you have a great day. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.